in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from deep in the heart of Texas, Mr. Dustin Melbardis. How you doing, sir? Good evening. I'm doing very good. Thanks for asking. That's a that's a very good way to open the show with a good evening. So very good evening. Yeah, I'm excited, Dustin, because we got a first time guest on with us, and he is a bit of an aficionado here today. So let's get Mr. Matthew Conium on here. How you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Yes. So from all the way in Bath. And you are the author of Dracula, A.D. 1931. Uh, tell us about this book uh, and where we can find it. It's um, it's a it's a kind of a, a fanatics guide to the to the 1931 Dracula. It's it's not not so much a deep dive as a, as a slow drowning in a, a film that has been <laughs> by my side for nearly 40 years now, and that I've never quite been able to shake off. And where to find it? Um, it's, it's published in Britain by Hemlock Books. Uh, so you can get it from, straight from Hemlock Books. It's also available in America from mymoviemonsters.com. Interesting. So, um, now what made you want to write this book, Matthew? I, I, I said that my first book, which was about the Marx Brothers, was the repayment of a debt to, to the films to kind of acknowledge the um, the absolute difference that discovering them made to my life. So this is kind of the same, really. The Marx Brothers and this movie were the were the two um, uh, film encounters, if you like, of my of my younger childhood um, that that sort of changed my life. And they're they're also they're the, they're the two that I think of as sort of separate from my wider interest in cinema generally. They're 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 kind of different from the rest they enter my brain from a different angle and nest in a different section of cerebral cortex that's all their own i also wanted to, to counter the received wisdom on the film which is that it's a film of tremendous importance with an iconic central performance um, and of huge value as the, the birth of the american horror film etc etc but which after a splendid first reel more or less dies on it yeah, and as you mentioned, the Marx Brothers, you are also, I want to give you credit for this effort of yours, if people want to hear from you on the Marx Brothers Council podcast, uh, we had your co-host Noah Diamond on with us for the Monkey Business episode, which was earlier this year, so did you want to give people a plug for the Marx Brothers Council podcast as well? Yeah, yeah, do, do, if you're a Marx Brothers fan, um, why on earth aren't you listening to it already? We're, yeah. we are, we've just done our 50th, uh, 50th show, we do one a month. And they are um, ridiculously deep dives into uh, into Marx, Marxiana for people who are obsessed. Yeah, it, it it is a deep dive, and you take your funny business very seriously. I'll say that too. Like you know, like I gotta say, I like what you had to say about how these these two either groups of films or there's these these two different entities 
approach your your mindset differently than cinema in general. And I, I came to that realization about a different movie last year, Monty Python's Quest for the Holy Grail. I realized I had seen it so early that it had affected my own lifetime's sense of humor. And so I, it's hard to rate it among other movies because I don't really remember a time without that kind of silliness, without that kind of approach to comedy. So it, it, I, I don't approach it the same way as other movies. Yeah, I mean, but this one even more than the Marx Brothers. I mean, I, 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 I can be objective about the Marx Brothers if I, if I have to be. But with this, I, I find it very hard to be objective. I'm afraid it just it lives in my head. It's okay. We're not critics. We're fans of movies, and that's okay. So it's okay to love them. <laughs> in fact, I think it's I think it's better when you talk about what you love about it. So. Um, why don't we get into it here? So, as we mentioned before, we're going to do Dracula, but which Dracula are we doing, Dustin? 1931. All the way back. Uh, not necessarily the very beginning, though, if you count Nosferatu. So, but uh, still, this is the beginning of American horror cinema here. So, it starts Bella Lugosi, David Manners, Helen Chandler, Dwight Fry, and Edward Van Sloan. Made for a budget of three, $341,000, which sounds like not a lot, but it's $1931. But it grosses domestically, and Matthew, correct me if I'm wrong here, I, numbers from this far back seem fuzzy. How could it have $4.2 million domestically? Is this uh, through re-releases? Uh, it might include re-releases. Um, it, seems, it seems like too much money for 1931. Maybe. I mean, does it include international revenue, or is it just... It says domestically on this. Not sure. I mean, it, it was a huge hit. It was. Yeah. So, you know, this is from the ultimatemovierankings.com. So this is not my information per se. So, uh, but it, it places on the box office in 1931 at eighth place in the box office, just behind Daddy Long Legs and ahead of The Man Who Came Back. Uh, number one movie from 1931 was the Charlie Chaplin movie, City Lights. And um, that is Chaplin, right? It is. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I'll edit that out to sound more confident. Um <laughs> IMDb gives Dracula a 7.4, and the critics of Rotten Tomatoes love this movie. They give it a 94%, and the audience score is 82%. It has no awards at the time, but it has some distinctions from the AFI. It gives it 85 on the AFI thrills list for the most thrilling movies, and it, it gives Dracula the number 33 for villains, for the greatest villains list. This seems to have gained credibility over time. Again, no awards necessarily at the time, but it's uh, something that seems to be more and more revered throughout time. So, Matthew, clearly you've seen this movie. What was it like seeing it early on, and how has it changed as you've watched it over the years? I first saw it um, on a Saturday night in the late summer of 1983. So I recently just turned 10 years old, and it was the first film in a season of universal horror films that were being shown through the summer. Um, you, you should know that in 1983, we actually, we only had four TV channels and even the fourth one had only been on air for a year. So you tended to, to just watch, you know, watch what was on because there wasn't much choice. And you, the good thing about that is you, you kind of discovered stuff that you might not necessarily have gone looking for. Um, but because you, you didn't have the remote control and you couldn't zap away to 400 other channels, you, you stick around and, and you'd kind of, um, 
you know, discover stuff. And so a lot of the things that I that I love, um, I discovered in that way. This wasn't one of them. This was something that I tuned into eagerly that I'd been waiting for for a very, very long time. I had to I had to beg my my mum to let me stay up and watch it for reasons that I can no longer remember that, that go into the prehistory of my childhood. I was just always obsessed with Dracula. I don't know when I first encountered it. Not not specifically this film, but, you know, Dracula as a as an entity. So um, it it was just a, a magical moment when when it finally came on, when when the Swan Lake music struck struck up. And uh, it was on a double bill with the 1931 Frankenstein, which most people think is a, is a vastly superior movie and and i watched that too and i loved that too but but dracula was the one for me and and still is wow so that's a good by the way it's a good double feature for sure so what do you feel like do you feel like it holds up over time because this is a 1931 movie we're approaching you know we're not quite to the 100 year mark but i mean as you watch it from somebody from a modern era do you what do you feel like this movie has for us today well it's funny. I mean, I've watched it a lot. I've watched it countless times. And when I was writing my book, I watched it kind of on a loop for, for a couple of months. So if anything was going to kill it, that would have done, or at least kind of numbed it, you know, but, but it, but it didn't. I, I could watch it tomorrow with as much delight as I watched it in 1983. So in a way, it, it, I feel like it hasn't changed. In another way, it's, it's different every time. It, it's, it's not a film. How can I put this? It's not a film that I've never kind of taken charge of in the way that there are there's a lot of films that I've seen so many times that I can talk along with all the dialogue and I know from second to second what the next scene is going to be, what the next image is going to be. But Dracula has never kind of let me in in that way. It still feels like an alien visitation in the corner of the room. Does Great. it hold up? Um most people will say no, it doesn't hold up, um, and that that's kind of perversely the most interesting thing about it—that a film that is this important, this much responsibility for for what was to follow—is in itself dull. I mean, people just find it dull. My feeling is that these people belong with Renfield in the padded cell. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dustin, had you seen this one before? Of course not. That's my calling card. I don't see any of the movies that we do on this show. I, I I wait for you to introduce them to me so that I can watch them for the first time. And that is my gift to you, the listeners, that I come in without any experience at all. Now, Have you seen any Dracula movies before? I, I think I, I share with Matthew kind of a fascination with Dracula, the character, or I, I would say maybe Dracula, the character is different than vampires in general. In this movie and in popular culture, I think Dracula is something that is its own. I read Dracula in high school, then I reread it later on in my 20s. But with, like, the, the character has always been something that I thought was important and, like, iconic, I should say. But the, the movie, you know, this, this was something that I was going in thinking, like, all right, let's get to early. And I know that you, you mentioned that it wasn't the first, but let's get to like seeing this early version and i think it did not disappoint absolutely and for me i actually picked this movie up uh used it was a good deal We're looking to do a halloween kind of marathon and you're not gonna like this matthew but we watched about three other movies before it and it was late at night and i popped this one in and this is not 
the time of night. Like, you don't want to put this one on when you're really tired. And I conked out. So I, uh, I, I woke up and I did finish it later. And uh, I think I had watched it with other more adrenaline-filled, more modern movies. And the change of pace did hit me in a way. So I actually had to come back to it years later. And so, because I do own it. And, um, and I watched it again for this one. And I got to say, I'm appreciating it more each time. I do think it requires understanding what you're getting in for. So it, uh, again, if you, but as a fan of film and the history of it, I start to look at it as a piece of history in the transition from silent movies to talking movies and also theater to movies are all coming together here. And then you start to realize the impact it had. So I'm not trying to be too objective about it, but you just got to start appreciating it for once for once for what all of it's done beyond that, if that makes any sense. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's one of the hardest movies that I can think of offhand to to come to in anything resembling the way that original audiences came to it. It's virtually impossible to to scrub away the 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 next 90 years of horror movies and vampire movies and Dracula movies and look at this thing fresh without spotting all these kind of cliches that that we now know are the the, the cliches of the American horror movie. But that that actually started here. Yes. And I think that that's amazingly valuable. And for far as Dracula goes, I mean, I've seen the 92 Ford Coppola version. I've seen the 79 with Frank Langella. I've seen this one. I've seen the 1922 uh, Nosferatu, which is not technically called Dracula, but it is. It did. It it's close enough that it got sued for being so. Um, you know, I mean, it it is the Dracula <laughs> story without being the Dracula story. Um, and there's things that I like about each one of these versions, and I there's things that um, I I I don't think anybody's ever done it perfect. I mean, I I love the Bram Stoker book. I read the Bram Stoker book when I was probably around like 17 or so, and I loved it. Um, it's, uh, I was like, I couldn't believe we got to read this in English class. It's like a, it's like a trashy thriller novel. And like, I was like, we get to read this. This is, this is actually enjoyable. <laughs> so, you know, I want to uh, expand on something that Matthew said, which is, you know, it's when, when it comes, I think he described it as it, it's almost alien, the way that it approaches and the, the way that scenes come together. You don't really know what to expect. Like there are certain movies that I you sort of know off the top of my head. And, um, I think. At its time, what are we looking at? Seventy-six minutes here. I mean, short. Yeah, it's short by today's standards. Listeners of the podcast know that I love a tight movie. I love when it's nice and short. And uh, the, but those seventy-six minutes or however long uh, kind of demand your attention. You can't just have it on and be doing no. a crossword. You yeah. you feel in a way compelled to watch and not take your eyes off the screen and. That's that's pretty great. You don't get tired like you would. I just listened to our Shawshank Redemption episode from months ago, and I'm that's a long movie. This this you feel as if you you need to keep your eyes glued to the screen, for sure. So I like I like there's parts I like about each Dracula, and there's parts of it that the book is still my ultimate version, that my ultimate measuring stick. And uh, so I there's parts of them that I always find myself wanting just to be closer to the book. So. Um, that's my background anyway with it. So we will have spoilers that lie ahead. So if you don't want this movie, this, this hot new movie that just came out in 1931, if you don't want this spoiled for you, you, you may want to, you may want to go watch it and come back and enjoy it after this, but we will be back after these messages. 
Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back, and there will be spoilers that lie ahead. And Dustin, for those who haven't seen Dracula since 1931, would you like to refresh people's memories for us? Please make yourself comfortable and pour yourself a glass of some very old wine as I recount the tale of Dracula. I see what you did there. It is Walgulis night, and we learn of young Renfield seeking out Castle Dracula. He is greeted and immediately entranced and turned into a slave who helps Dracula cross the sea to England, Renfield having coordinated and transported the soil of Transylvania to England. Count Dracula has leased Carfax Abbey for some reason unimportant. What's the Count here for? Blood, 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 ah, ah, ah. What follows is an undeadly romp through the area as Dracula really shows very little restraint, fighting a young flower sales girl, fighting young Miss Weston, and Mina Seward, soon to be Harker, while Jonathan Harker babbles on in the background. Our hope lies in Professor Van Helsing, who essentially immediately realizes that we've got our vampire problem on our hands, how absolutely convenient, as he knows every trick in the book to stop a vampire. Crucifixes, Wolfsbane, the sunrise, leading to a dismally small amount of casualties and a dead Count Dracula, stabbed through the heart while he slept in his coffin box, saving Mina's life. So, Matthew, this is regarded by many as the film that kickstarted the horror genre in Hollywood in America. Now, the Germans... We're big into horror before this, but this is the this is the U.S. arrival here. So this is like horror, like getting off the plane, like the Beatles coming to America and like yes. waving, waving to people. And then yes, yeah. as as you rightly said, there was there was there were earlier um, adaptations of the novel. And the most famous one was 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 Nosferatu, the the German film in the early twenties, nineteen twenty two, I think. Um, but but they were that film in particular was was kind of steeped in weirdness, and it was part of. Uh, a wider movement, the German Expressionist movement, which was which which kind of was all about weirdness. Whereas this is the first time that that American audiences would have would have sat down and seen a supernatural horror movie in which the supernatural character isn't revealed to be a crook dressed up, but actually is uh, a, an undead thing and it's all taking place in a recognizably modern and a recognizably american milieu yeah there used to be a little disclaimer at the end of it apparently where they would sit there and say if you're uncomfortable with what you've seen tonight and you go back and draw the curtains remember and then like they think they're going to comfort you and say there's no such thing as vampires but they would say there are such things. such things yeah 
Yes. So th- this is cut off of many of the versions today, but I I, uh, I think that that's a I think that that knowing that story, like you said, I, it's hard to uh, take yourself back to cinema and to sit there and say like, wow, I haven't been scared like this in a theater or this is this supernatural content's going to be handled seriously. People were reported to have fainted. I don't know if uh, uh, this is good for your movie. It makes people want to go see your movie. We we definitely talked about this in the Exorcist episode where. <laughs> The extreme reactions just draw people to the theater. So everyone's just like, what? It's so scary. You puked. I have to, I I, I don't want to puke, but I kind of want to see this movie. What is it that's doing this? And so obviously people were, were drawn to it. Um, but it was a big gamble. Hollywood, Hollywood studios didn't undertake this kind of thing. And, uh, initially it was going to be a bigger production to follow the Bram Stoker novel more directly. But, um, American audiences might have had some chilling kind of movies before, but nothing quite like this. So it's interesting that uh, they kind of knew they had something that would work. This was a Broadway play and the the, the novel was successful. So um, it's interesting. Why was Hollywood? Why was Dracula the thing that had to break through for the horror genre to to lay the foundations for everything, Matthew? Well, it's interesting, as you say, because it it, it was um, it was a hit Broadway play, and and the 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 film is an, adap- an adaptation of of the play, rather than of of the book, which is it's been opened out a bit, but it's basically an adaptation of the play. The play was a smash hit on Broadway, but for some reason, um, they just the feeling at that time was that you could do stuff on the stage that you just can't really get away with on on the screen. But I think it was thought that the screen was more uh you know a, mod- a modern talking american movie was more kind of realistic i think and they were genuinely concerned um partly concerned that the people would would be revolted by this thing that it would just be too horrible but there's also they would they, they were worried that people would just laugh at, at the idea uh, of being asked to, to take this seriously because the default ending in these stories Right up until this time, I mean, there's the, the famous Lon Chaney film, London After Midnight, a lost film from 1927, which is a vampire movie that was remade as Mark of the Vampire with Lugosi in 1935. That ended with the vampire being revealed as somebody dressed up and it's all a, it's all a plot. You know, that was the default ending. By the Scooby-Doo crew, right? Exactly. The yes. The, the Scooby-Doo ending was was the default. And, I, and I, I, they were genuinely worried. Would audiences accept this with, with, you know, being asked to take this seriously? Yeah. Yeah. So th- this time it wasn't old man Tucker trying to, like, rig up the amusement park so that he could buy it. So, yeah. Um, well, and we've got in movie sort of reference to it in a way. I mean, I'm talking to the expert, but. What what is I I believe it's it's Van Helsing who says that that's the greatest tool of a vampire is he knows that you won't believe he exists. Yeah, yeah. You think about how you know audiences being shown this kind of thing. I like what you said about uh, it, it is it it is hard to get away with certain things you could get away with on stage in a movie. Uh, but I I almost felt in some in many of these scenes actually that uh, I I was closer to looking at from the seats I could afford in a theater to see a live stage show at uh, a stage in front of me, as opposed to, you know, more traditional modern shots. Yeah. And the other thing is you've kind of alluded to was we are so familiar with vampires. I mean, from the time that you're even a kid, you hear about vampires, you know, I mean, and it's 
this was not necessarily something that was in the American lexicon. And um, so whether it's having bite marks on your neck or being able to turn into, uh, in this case, they do, they, they get, they get the wolves and the bats and to transform, not being able to go out into uh, the light, getting life from drinking blood and all this stuff. So this is, this is adding a lot of stuff, sleeping in coffins. And um, it's also, you know, this is the lasting image of what people think. Like Dracula is the benchmark for what vampires are. So, you know, he's, uh, he's pretty polished. He's like an aristocrat version. Like uh, he makes it seem kind of glamorous, if you will. So th- this is in huge contrast because I-, I know, Justin, you might not have seen the Nosferatu from 1922. Just Google a picture of what of what that version of it looked like. And real quick, because uh, it, strangely it is... enough, I have seen that one. I, I, I've seen oh, it and I, I know the classic look of that vampire. So this is not like the like that guy just looks creepy, by the way. Anybody at home, just Google it. It's, it's, it's wild. And so, Matthew, what made them want to go with a different route? This isn't exactly like the book. You meet him. He's like old, like creepy old when you first meet him. And he gets younger by drinking lots of blood. Um, in this book, he's, he's a smooth operator. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting because I think it's largely unconscious and it's largely accidental. And, and the reason for it is you have to go back to not the book, uh, but the play that it's based on. And the play that it's based on completely jettisons entirely the, the opening sections in Transylvania. It's entirely set in, uh, in England when he, after he's, he's already arrived. Uh, so it's all set in, you know, in, in fashionable drawing rooms rather than, rather than, than, than in the castle. And incidentally, the, you mentioned the Frank Langella film. That's also an adaptation of the play. And that also does away with, with, um, the the opening sequences but what happens because um it was he was turned into a kind of a sexual threat uh as a as a seducer so so lugosi uh who played also played the role on broadway um is is starts the play in this in this milieu of of um you know fashionable society so of course that's his that's almost his disguise he looks immaculate and he's got these 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 beautiful opera clothes and and the cloak when he's outside and his hair is slicked back because that's kind of that's what he's using to to inveigle his way into into this society and to get at these women now when the time came to make the film one of the things they decided to do was to open it up and add on a, a first reel at the start where we see him in the castle. Um, what they seem to have done almost unconsciously is to not change his look. His look in the play makes perfect sense because he's in fashionable society. But in the movie, we we find him, we first encounter him in this castle, which is, I mean, crumbling is, if you to call it crumbling, is, is to, to pay it a compliment. I mean, it's, 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 it, it's in ruins. Absolutely. It's in ruins and it's filthy and there are animals scuttling about and, and, but, but he looks like he's just about to, 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 to pop out to the opera. Um, it's amazing that they went for that. It's amazing that they didn't think uh, people would laugh at that. But the, the incredible thing is that in, in, in doing that, they invented the iconic look that Dracula has basically had ever since. Yes, absolutely. And um, it's it, even it goes into lots of I mean, even the count from Sesame Street is based on 
is based on this. Like, I mean, it's it's ripples are huge. I mean, in the book, there's nothing that says that he has to have this like strong accent necessarily. Um, but it's Lugosi's like that's his accent. Like that that's just him. And like we think of like you just how you were opening up the show with us, Dustin, of like blah, like good evening and like i mean like there's just like there's it's an expectation really not that pronounced in the movie it's it's not it's not as caricature like as i was doing it's true but i mean this is where it all comes from this is what our expectations are set for and so it's interesting when you expect something to go back and watch it and sit there and think oh yeah i mean i saw this was coming but it does require additional viewings to sit there and go back like, oh, yeah, this nothing was there was no expectations here. And so I, I really have to challenge myself when I take this in to sit there and go, well, what would it have been like to be there in the theaters to actually see everybody around you being legitimately afraid to have not heard what a vampire is and to like not to be introduced to like, hey, this this woman Mina is being like, you know, drained of her life force and. Um, it looks very close, like she's going to be uh, consumed. Like it's very late in the movie. They have a come from behind victory. Uh, it's like in the last mm-hmm. three minutes of the movie, like they pull out a happy ending, and um, it doesn't look like it's going to go that way. So um, it, it's funny that this is on the thrills list because it is done at a pace that you might not take it in as thrilling, but it would have been at the time. And that's it's one of those things that you could kind of realize upon thinking about it further. Russell, I think that's something important that I don't know if challenge is the right word for me here, but I've, I've heard a couple of our co-hosts, you know, use the term like, oh, you know, you got to watch it a couple times. And I don't know if that is the best way of putting it. You can. And that I don't know if that's fair to like rate a movie based on your fifth time watching it. I, I think what I like to try to do I will never just flip the channel to a movie and say, okay, I'll watch this. I'd like to prepare to sit down. It's like an event. And it all it took was one watch for me to prepare. That, all right, I'm looking at 1931 here. I'm looking at the technology of the time. I'm looking at these things at the time that the world as a whole, America as a whole, Universal Pictures, people don't know what vampires are. And so there's an amount of explanation, and there's also an amount of not explanation. I'm not exactly sure if they ever really dive into the details of how Count Dracula can enthrall someone with just a stare, or can communicate, really, without uh, speaking. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about squeaking, like from the bat, but there's, there's some things that are not fully explained. And other things that are just a part of the character's portrayal, like the slow movement, and other things that are a part of the way that the movie was shot, like the focusing on just the eyes, just Dracula's eyes. Oh, something must be going on. And it's not just stylistically, after the first half, you realize, oh, this is an indicator for us, the audience. He's doing something. And then later on, as he's trying to compel Van Helsing to come forward, he's giving him the command, enthralling him. When he puts out the classic uh, hand that's kind of um, bent down with fingers arcing, like this is what magic looks like. Uh, I, I think there's there's a fair amount of well, you don't you don't have to really get everything, and it doesn't really. And this is where I said I'm challenging you. I don't think it requires multiple watches. You just kind of have to prepare your mind for going in the first time. Yeah, I mean, I think if you don't if you don't like it the first time, a second watch probably isn't going to 
be much use. Unless you're going in for the purpose of saying, I want to be more involved with the lore of Dracula, so I'm going to give it another go. Um, but but that's that's just it. Is uh, I, I don't I I'm not saying you need additional viewings to like it better. I, I just I I think that it might not be the fairest to say like, well, watch it three or four times and you'll get it. But let's talk about Belagosi here. He was not necessarily their first choice, uh, was he, Matthew? He was anything but the first choice. No, I mean the the um he he had been he played the role on on stage, which which I mean it seems to us. For that reason, and because we 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 have the film with him in it, and he's so sensational, it seems crazy that that they they wouldn't have cast him. But in in actual fact, you know, he he wasn't a film star. He and and Hollywood would would naturally want to cast a well-known name in in the lead, and and he, and he wasn't that. Um, so so you know, it, it's not particularly hard to understand. I don't think why they they wouldn't have wanted him. What is more bizarre? Are the you know the, the people they did consider because obviously it's a, it's a very very specialized role. There are very few people who who really could have done it justice in in Hollywood. I mean, uh, uh, Conrad Veidt would have been one, but he he was and, it and, uh, it, you know left. People would know him from Casablanca more most commonly. Like they uh, would know him from, from Casablanca now. Yeah, at the time they would have known him from things like The Man Who Laughs and uh, Cabinet of Dr Caligari and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so you know he would have been good. Um, but you know, I mean, the, the long list of people. I mean, they basically offered it to to anyone they could think of who was either tall or had a European accent <laughs> or had, had had worn a cape. I mean, they offered it to to Chester Morris simply because he he'd been in the the uh, the bat the year before, and so just you know, the word bat was felt sufficient <laughs> to. Um, yeah, and um, it was really absolutely at the eleventh hour they had run out of of all other options and they they grudgingly decided to give it to to Lugosi. Lugosi had played his hand too early. He made it clear that he was he was desperate for the role. So they they got him for a, an insultingly low fee. Um and he he really he was literally the the last minute last choice. Uh, and and now of course we think how could they possibly have wanted anyone else? Yeah, and you mentioned I, I have read that Lon Chaney in particular was considered for the title role, uh, who would work with the director, um, Brad Brownstein or he, Todd Browning. Yeah, I mean, Tom he, Browning, Todd Browning he, before he was definitely the the person that that, that the studio wanted to do it. Um, opinions differ as to to whether or not he actually you know was interested in doing it. If it, if the, if the offer had been made. Uh, some people say yes, some people say no. Um, obviously, he couldn't because he he died in 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 1930. Um, so 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 that was that. I also I I don't think he would actually have been a a strong choice to be honest. I mean, he was uh, an extremely gifted makeup guy. He could he could transform his body as we all know. Um, Hatchback of Notre Dame maybe is this Notre Dame, yeah. uh, Phantom of the Opera. Um, but also, you know, he, he, he played lots of handicapped roles and, you know, with contorted his body. And he had played a, a vampire character, as I said, in London After Midnight. But if you look that up, uh, look at his look in that film, it's, it's an extremely grotesque vampire with, with shaggy long hair, teeth, pointy teeth like, like little shark's teeth. Um, you know, an overtly monstrous vampire and this this vampire isn't he he's very attractive he's very 
personable um and he's mysterious and and middle european um and and cheney you know really wasn't any of those things so so although he seemed the natural choice at the time i think he would have he would have been a very different dracula and i think horror film history would have would have been very different as a result of that and Lugosi helped them secure the rights for this, as I'm understanding from Bram Stoker's uh, widowed wife, right? To get the rights to do this. He, yeah, I mean, he he put himself forward in in a in a in a you know I don't think they they um, wanted him to to get him on. This was all just part of his campaign to get the role. He said, "I'll I'll, I'll I will help out with the with the rights." <laughs> but, but, um, <laughs> In actual fact, what they didn't realize was there were there was no there were no rights to be acquired because the book had never been copyrighted in America. So the money that they paid to secure the rights, uh, in actual fact, they, they didn't need to. So why is it in Germany they had to destroy Nosferatu, which luckily some copies exist and we can still watch it today? Like, why? Why is that? Why do you have to throw those out? But we, it was it was free reign here because it had been copyrighted in Germany and, and in, in ah, Germany. Got it. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, nobody, but nobody realized it. It was only as uh, an oversight that it hadn't been. Got it. Okay. And so Lugosi, though, uh, himself, like you said, so he's an un- Hungarian stage actor. He's in 172 different productions of in Hungary, and he moves to silent films. And so, Matthew, what can you tell us about him in his transition from silent film to speaking films here? Yeah, I mean, in a way... I mean, like so much about this film, it's, there's there's a there's a paradox here because in, it, obviously he was made by talking films. If he hadn't made a, the talking Dracula, we almost certainly would have would have long since forgotten about him. Uh, however, talking movies were also his curse. Um, in silent films, he was he was he came in, into American movies at a time when when the Latin type, the Latin lover. Was a very was a very big thing, and and he was a kind you know basically a Valentino type, a Rudolph Valentino type, the tall, mysterious, smoldering, uh, you know European man, and that and that that was his image, and that's why he got so much fan mail from from women, uh, amorous fan mail, um, when when Dracula came out. Unfortunately, you know that 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 accent which was which was tailor made for Dracula severely limited what he was able to do in talking movies from then on and and he he was typed in in horror movies almost almost literally overnight i mean uh, the, the by the from like his very next films right after dracula he's already slipping down the cast lists and uh you know he and and basically hampered by this this gorgeous rich voice um that that just stopped him playing so many things that he would want to play and that in silent films he could have done why did he not end up wanting then to come back and do like son of dracula and daughter of dracula like like why did he not just lean into this more he, well he would have loved to have to have done that i mean he, he, they didn't offer it to him i mean oh. he, he basically he um he was his own worst enemy in terms of um making it obvious 
that he needed he needed them more than than they needed him. Unfortunately, uh, the, 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 as a result of the success of Dracula, the studio rushed into Frankenstein, and Frankenstein made a, a star of Boris Karloff, who played the monster, just as Dracula had made a star of Lugosi, and Karloff was the one who then became the big mm-hmm. horror star because yeah. Karloff had had a had a wider range. Um, he was easier to cast. He didn't have the, the language problems that Lugosi had. Uh, he was more chameleonic than, than Lugosi. He could play lots of different characters. So Lugosi found himself being, being edged out ever further into the margins of the only genre that, that was, was kind of employing him anyway. So it, within a very few years, um, unfortunately, he, he was, he was being treated, you know, very badly going for long periods of time with no work or, you know, very, very minor work or demeaning work. And Universal in particular seemed to have been, I mean, it's, it's hard to rationalize it in any other way than that they were deliberately cruel to him. They, they just seemed to like, um, using him in demeaning ways they would cast him as you know butlers endlessly as butlers or you know <laughs> uh, ugly you know gardeners and yokels and and uh, you know things that, that don't play to his strengths at all um they you know they cast him as the frankenstein monster in 1943 when he was far too old and frail to play it uh, and then blamed him on, on, you know because on the on the the fact that it for the fact that it didn't didn't work um he would have loved to have been offered son of dracula he wasn't he did return of the vampire for columbia the same year and he's great in it but universal didn't want to know you know what that info makes me think and what makes this special is that the personal details about bella lugosi and his treatment from the studios and the timing of him being typed afterwards uh it, it really makes you think that they kind of caught lightning in a bottle for this production and this production only It it was not the start of some, I mean, what would we do today? This would now be a five-year deal and a three-movie big, you know, multi-million dollars, and we're just going to invest very heavily right away. And that's fine that that's what the model is now, but for this particular movie, what we got was something that's special, and there's no other things necessarily as far as film that are directly attached because of the timing and the business. So it's kind of a little treat in and of itself for this production. Another great actor they plucked from the stage was Edward Von Sloan as Van Helsing. Herbert Brunson, uh, Bunston was also Dr. Seward in this, also from the stage from there. But Edward Van Sloan, man, he has a presence himself here as well. He's almost as spooky as Dracula, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I got to point him out, Dwight Fry kind of steals the show in a lot of places here. And... This is not somebody I had on my name registry before, but now, he, now for sure he is. I mean, I don't think he is the best Renfield of any version I've seen for sure. And again, like like Lugosi, um, another another sad example of of somebody whose career was kind of stalled by Hollywood's seeming inability to 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 even peer over the edge of 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 the box. I mean, he he had been cast. Um, because basically not because he was a a creepy little fly eating guy he was cast because he was he had a reputation for for versatility he was a broadway actor um who could do comedy and drama and everything else in between and and you know was was a hugely talented guy as soon as he did dracula that was it all hollywood wanted from him was hunchbacks and freaks and and creepy 
guys. Uh, and um, and similarly, just like Lugosi, you know, he was he was trapped in these roles. He ended up in the later Universal horror movies um, doing little walk on bits, uh, not even being credited in some of them, being cut from some of them. Um, it, it was just a, a really a heartless time for 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 actors. They 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 just didn't seem to care. They would trample on them. Um, and he ended up, you know, in, in a very bad way. He died quite young. Um, he was uh, in 1943. He died. His last film was a um, a PRC horror film called uh, Dead Men Walk, in which he plays yet another little scuttling, creepy acolyte of the vampire. And he looks about 40 years older than than he does in Dracula. He was um, he was working in a in a um, an airplane um, parts factory, I think, during the day for the war effort. Uh, then then filming at night, and he just he he just gave up. He just collapsed on a bus in Hollywood and died died of a heart attack. Quite a young man. This is a depression movie. This is not a time when theaters were generating a lot of profits, and you know this was one of the only years that they came out in the black. Dracula having something to do with that, uh, the success off of it. But I mean, this movie was going to be a bigger one, as I mentioned, based on the Bram Stoker novel, but it got downsized um, to choose the stage play to be more adaptable, fewer characters, less wide spanning, fewer scenes. I, I don't know. how. You, so how do you feel about uh, it makes me feel a lot better, I think, just simply knowing that this is not Bram Stoker's dracula yeah definitely i mean it's it is it is a separate thing um i mean i didn't actually read the the novel until after i'd I'd seen most of the other films i think and and it is it is a completely different experience i think it's important to always try to do that you almost get to the point i've brought up on this show before that i think the titles of movies uh can sometimes really affect what your expectations are going in I had a discussion last year with Andrew Newman, I think. We were talking about Sherlock Holmes, those Sherlock Holmes movies that come out. Yeah. They would be just as entertaining if they weren't called Sherlock Holmes. And the people who know the, is, is that Arthur Conan Doyle? People that know the Sherlock Holmes might say, that's nothing like the book. I'm like, that's okay. 36 days uh, schedule and a budget of, uh, as, as I mentioned before, of an estimated three hundred and fifty five thousand dollars in cost um is this a minor budget is this an on average budget it, it's not it's not a big budget from what i understand well it's not it's certainly not the 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 super production which is what it would uh, as it was announced initially um that the you know the, the kind of budget that they they had in mind for it um they universal had done really well with um all quiet on the western front um because universal Prior to that, and, and indeed after that, we, you know, we, we think of Universal now as you know Universal Studios and Jaws and DT and the, the Universal Tour and, and whatever. Um, but it was actually it was a kind of a second tier studio. It wasn't it wasn't one of the majors like MGM. Um, and uh, yeah, and you know the, the depression was was biting, um, and it was it you know it was decided to to, uh, to to scale it down to turn it from a from a from a big a you know to a not not to a b but to a to a, a low a so director todd browning we're talking about silent film transitions here todd browning is very much coming from the silent movie world if you look through an extensive filmography he only makes you know six uh six or more films after this 
um, in the in the talking era. Like he's not really steeped in there. But I'll tell you what, he dro- he drops two horror movie essentials in there, both Dracula and Freaks from the early 1930s. There, um, these are both touchstone horror movie genre essentials. Um, talk about Todd Browning and his transition here to, to talking movies. Well, yeah, I mean, um, Freaks really is is the answer to your to your implied question there, which is what you know, why didn't he go on to make lots and lots of talking films? And 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 the reason is you know because Freaks pretty much uh, cut him off at you know at the knees for for a long time because it was such a notorious. Um, not not even a flop, really, because it, it 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 didn't even get the exposure. I mean, it just it just horrified. I mean, people watched this thing, uh, and I'm not talking about audiences. You know, I'm talking about the studio uh, watched this thing and and said, you know, this is the most hideous thing. Repugnant, yeah. Any anyone has you know what 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 were we thinking, letting this guy make this movie um but of the two of that and dracula it is it is the more typically uh todd browning film of of the two because uh todd browning's background was in carnival he was a he was a carny guy and he he used to perform in carnivals and he did a he did an act where he was buried alive for instance uh and he was absolutely steeped in the world of the circus and carnival uh and he was obsessed with things like deformity uh you know freaks um the, the, the that kind of twilight world the the you know the the the, the twilight carnival world and that made him a perfect match for lon Chaney. Who was an actor who who reveled in physical transformation and grotesque physical transformation? So the two of them were were perfectly matched, and he made lots and lots of silent movies um, with with Lon Chaney, um, absolutely fascinating movies. But they've all got that atmosphere that Fre- that Freaks has got of of you, you almost want to take a shower after you watch them. That they're, they're mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're, they're dark and they're clammy and they're dank and, and, and they're kind of, they deal with, with people who are mercenary, uh, and, uh, and cynical and exploitative and, and sadistic and, and, you know, they, they got a lot of negative, negative press. Um, which, you know, all of which kind of made him the ideal choice for Dracula, but it, but, Looking at it now with hindsight, he's kind of an unconventional choice, actually, because because, you know, Dracula is is set in a world uh, that is very, very different from from his from his Cheney world, which is which is realistic, but hideous. So David Manners doesn't really recount a very nice picture of Todd Browning. And uh, he doesn't like the movie very much. He never saw it, um, which is hard to believe that you don't see your own movie. But um uh, he said the production was disorganized under Todd Browning and showed little interest in directing the film. And none of the cast members took the film seriously, except for Lugosi. And they said that, uh, witness, again, David Manners said that Lugosi would stroll up and down the set with his cloak saying, I am Dracula, like even like when not filming uh, in character. But um, it's interesting. A lot of this has been um, chalked up to cinematographer Carl Freud being stepped in to help direct some of the scenes it sounds like now i you have better information than i do matthew but it doesn't sound like uh at least david manners and some of the other recollections here is they're being a little hard on todd browning um uh he says that he was battling with alcoholism and 
you know, struggling, I guess, with the loss of a friend of Todd Browning at the time. And uh, he wasn't that professional during the shoot. Um, how much how much of how much of this side of the story is there? In- well, I, I don't have better information, but I do have uh, an opinion, uh, which is, you know, I don't I don't discount completely what what David Manners says. But I but I think. I, I am inclined to take it with a pinch of salt because he he in the in his interviews he is very much taking the position of of a, a you know a, a, a cynical you know dist- take, keep keeping his distance from the film which I think he thought was a little bit a little bit beneath him he was um, at the time although although he, he didn't go on to become a big star um, at the time he was uh, a, a, you know a, a leading man uh, in in in. Uh, romantic movies and and so on and and he probably felt he was he you know he was he was worth more than this this silly vampire film um he he, he is in fairness given a, a terribly thankless role um and plays it with all the with all the the limpness it deserves um so so in a way you can understand you know that it, that he he has no love for the movie um but I, I do think that that is that it, that coloured his his recollections. I don't necessarily buy the the Carl Freund thing. Um, other people certainly are on the set. I, I, I think Freund would have made more of the Dracula, the kind of Dracula film that a lot of people want this to be. Uh, if you look at his film The Mummy um, or Mad Love, you know they're they're much more gothic, atmospheric movies. And and and, and his his camera work in this movie, you know, camera so, work's pretty solid. It's 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 so beautiful and uh, and um, I I I see Browning personally I see Browning's hand in the actual uh, in the actual directorial choices and I and I think we can I think we can chalk a lot of it up to to David Banners's cynicism. Well, okay, that that I was curious about that. They weren't the very nicest words, Dustin. Now, obviously, um, what is your take from a directorial standpoint of how this is presented and? Well, I did mention that I, I felt like it, it seemed like a stage show at times, and that was a positive thing for me because I had prepared myself for that. There were some other things that, regardless of modernity, the idea of a flapping bat outside of a window, we don't <laughs> It does need... look a little bit like a rubber bat. <laughs> well, let's be fair. It looks a lot like a rubber bat, but that's okay. It looks fine to look like a rubber bat. It's a, it's a bobbling bat. And then we don't need some type of transition. We don't need any real uh, effort put towards effect. Then we just get another shot and Dracula is there and he appears in the room. And that's a fine, that, 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 fine is the wrong word because it makes it sound like I'm not giving it credit, showing what is happening here. And even 55 years later when we have, what is it, the Jim Henson movie Labyrinth, David Bowie as an owl outside the window, and then poof, he's there. No transformation there needed. Like there's some things that you allow the audience to make that jump for you without directly telling them. And we mentioned before that there is like some exposition. Ah, here's the thing about vampires. I've got one minute on it for you. Here you go. Um, I, I think our, our decisions with what is left in the film, what is included in the film, are um, exactly what we need. Um, I did find now uh, this may not be directly adjacent, but I did find as we were mentioning silent movies to a talkie here uh, that aside from Tchaikovsky in the very beginning, I really find this movie devoid of any ambiance in terms of our sound, yeah, or music. 
And if that style, that's one thing. If it's oversight, it's another. I think it took away from what some bigger moments could have been. And also makes me think like, oh, back before we focused on the, what is verbally said or shown us, you know, like with, with our audio, that there may have been more of an orchestral part to this and orchestral pieces may have made it feel more gothic perhaps. But, uh, you know, this movie was made the way that it is and it can't, couldn't have been made any other way. Uh, but I think I would have preferred to have heard music. I think I'm, again, you you just have to you just have to remember that this dates from the very early days of sound film, and there was genuine and I think understandable um, nervousness about the idea of 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 non ambient music in a movie because obviously you know the, the, there isn't music in life and there isn't music by and large in in theatre, uh, and the only reason that you had music in movies was because you didn't have live yeah, sound, re- right, recorded sound. Sense. So, so yeah. music, you know, is the inevitable accompaniment. Now that you've got actual recorded sound, yes, um, you could easily imagine people thinking, well, you know, why would there be music? People are going to laugh. This is not going to make any sense. And so, what you often find is excuses are found to have uh, ambient music, which is nonetheless used to 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 heighten the, the the drama and there's there's just one example of that in this film which is in the concert halls yeah. yeah where uh it, you can hear some some wagner in the background and it and it does underplay uh what what uh, is being said i do genuinely like that when that happens in movies even in movies with more modern soundtracks i'm with you though dustin i think music is a very powerful thing that can instill fear and excitement in film one of the first five movies I think we covered on this podcast was Mike, uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. And I remember they, they literally showed test films of it, and it did not get good reviews from people who were test screening it and the people from the company. And then Carpenter wrote that, like, you know, iconic little keyboard uh, music, the score in it. And, and then with not as much change as you would think, the producers and the other people who were watching it, it, it was a smashing success. It, Music has that transformative thing of just simply adding music made people really scared. Same thing with the the Exorcist. The Exorcist was scary, but like adding that like tubular bells song over it, holy cow! Same like, thing with Jaws. You know, Jaws was was the first time they tested Jaws. It didn't have yeah. you know John Williams's iconic score, and so so you can imagine that falling flat. I mean, try watching uh, Psycho with, without the music. Also, we've covered each of these movies, and we've talked about how much the score is so important to feeling the thrill and the scare and the suspense and i have to wonder why um they, they took them long, as long as they did to figure it out because it's it's it really elevates it it's um, the industry being behind it's not a failure from our our people who are in charge of the movie i told matthew the version that i have here dustin uh that I've, i had picked up adds a score from philip glass which is made many 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 years later and they superimpose it on there under the bonus features and I, i'll be honest with you i, I like having that there um so i mentioned that to matthew before the podcast uh matthew is this uh does this rub you the wrong way uh, yeah, to, to, add, to add to add music to uh to add music to uh browning's work it doesn't theoretically it doesn't no i mean i'm not i'm not um i'm not precious in that sort of a way I, it's not for me um i i like things the way 
they were originally done. I also, I must say, I, I like this film with with eerie silence, uh, but it's not something that I that I have a kind of a you know oh I'm a, this is a, a, a mutilation of the an outrage. It, it doesn't it doesn't bother me. You know, colorization it's not for me, but it doesn't bother me if if it makes some people enjoy it more then then fine you know go at it. Um, the only problem I I have with with that specific score the philip glass score is i just i just don't think it's very good i just don't think it fits but <laughs> but, but also I, th- I think it's too i think it's too dominant it's too it's too uh in the foreground it it's 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 kind of um it, it just it just comes at it too too loud and too hard i think it's a fun exercise for a composer a newer composer to take on though i think there are to... more movies to score than there are absolute incredible top tier composers yes so and, yeah, um, the odds are against them to do something that stands out. Yeah, but I mean, uh, so I guess no music is also a holder from the silent film, which Browning knows how to build suspense through silence. So there are moments, namely like when Renfield's knocked out, and like those uh, the three vampire wives, or I guess his harem of vampires are moving in, and it seems, and he like waves them off, and I mean that that scene and silence is really tense. So. I gotta say, I'm I'm kind of criticizing it for not having music at times, but there are some times where that silence is also very effective. So, and it's, in some territories, the film was was issued as a as, as a silent, and uh, it was um, you know it, it was the, the 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 idea at all times was was you know now that we, we used to have this art form that we could just send all over the world and everyone would would get it. Now suddenly we we we're bringing in this new way of doing it that has that has dramatically uh, narrowed you know the range of opportunities so so um you you can understand why why then they thought well maybe you know we should have minimal dialogue we should we should you know keep it kind of adaptable as a silent because in some places we might want to to do it as a, as a silent as i'm as i'm sure you know there was also a completely separate version of it that was made in Spanish uh, because um, obviously Mexico being a, a big, a big territory, um, a, a lot of early sound films were, were simultaneously made in other languages, uh, French and Spanish mainly. Um, and there is this Spanish version, version of Dracula, which was made on the same sets during the night. Um, and uh, ever since that, that, was sort of rediscovered um people uh delight in saying oh it's the better movie they 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 made a much better movie than this boring old todd browning one but what they mean is it's a more it, it's a movie that conforms more to what they think a horror film should be it's got it's got puffs of smoke when dracula appears it's got swooping camera uh, and all and all this sort of thing and, and for me it's just it's just a hokier film uh- they don't have the better Dracula actor. I can certainly tell you that. For sure, yes. The Spanish actor, I, I started it. I couldn't keep going with it. I, so I can't speak to the overall presentation. I have heard much of what you're saying, Matthew. Of it's, the, it's got the better presentation, but the actor is not nearly as good. Exactly. I mean, if you ever needed uh, a demonstration of, of the magic that Lugosi brings to this project, th- there it is. Yeah, yes. find something to compare it to. I will say I I don't think I would have preferred to to have puffs of smoke uh, come out when Dracula appears in a scene. I don't think I would have liked that at all. Um, it was but, it was part of the stage performance, though, as I understand. It was a it was a it was a lively stage performance with like flashes and puffs of smoke and like coffins that had like escape like chambers like like magicians would use. And it it was an ooh and ah kind of stage presentation. So 
in terms of what people are expecting. I don't know how many people saw that and therefore go to the theater expecting that, but that's a more translation, translatable experience, to Matthew's point. I have to ask Matthew, this, this film takes place in Transylvania and in, and in London. Uh, it's, it's mostly filmed in a soundstage. Um, at, 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 you know, but we have Royal Albert Hall with very, very London, um, you know, landmark here. You said you had a lot of enthusiasm and excitement to get into this. Do people in England get maybe a little more enthusiastic given that it takes place in England? I don't think so, to be honest. I mean, it's it's it's, it's supposedly in England, but it's it's a, it's pretty American. It, it's uh, it's a it's a kind of a it's a kind of a somewhere and nowhere version of of England, isn't it? It's it's very artificial. Okay, yeah, I did like their the carriage scenes when they were in in Hungary, though, like uh, in Transylvania. So um, it's interesting, I guess. I guess the peasants in the beginning are all warning them not to go, go, go see them. And then it does look like a very threatening, looks like a very threatening uh, path that it takes on. Apparently some of these are just matte paintings and, you know, or like, like paintings on glass over the actual camera lens and seeing how they had to negotiate some of this in early filmmaking. It's like, good for you. Good job. This like, you know, yes, it might look a little flat, but it looks good for what you had to deal with at the time. And yeah, on location shooting was not in the cards for cameras at this point in time. So I'm actually I'm actually impressed by some of what they do. There are some great videos on on YouTube um, of fanatics who have who have gone up into the Californian hills and matched the shots. And they've they've actually found the the that is cool supposedly transylvanian mountain pass that the carriage is rumbling along but just by like one rock or you know what some, some some formation you know they they've matched it up lined it up and uh, and it you know it does it looks like a, it looks like a western uh, location cool. um it's just a dusty californian um hillside track but but they've got the you know the mountain uh map paintings in the background and it's just incredible russell i would i would adjust your statement when Sorry, it sounds like I'm trying to be too critical of you. I'm not. Uh, I would adjust your statement by saying it's it doesn't just look good for the time. It it looks good. I thought it was I thought it was special to see those kind of like this as what is presented to us the audience. Yeah, I mean, but I'm not an I, architecture guy. No, no, I want to I want to give it I want to give it uh, plenty of credit. It, like there's a fantasy component to this that I think is really cool. That I actually was in my head thinking you could do some of these old techniques now in order to get like a super like kind of reality kind of feeling. I'm saying I'm, I, I was actually kind of sitting there going like, gosh, some of these are really cool. How could you how could you bring some of that back into now and use it? Because they are very stylized. And what I find is very charming and in a very good way. So, no, it's not like the 12 Angry Men outside window that I was stuck on in that episode. I kept I kept looking at that bad background painting and going like the perspective's all wrong. This looks like garbage and it's a big distraction because the whole movie's in one room. This like if you have to get a backdrop, why is this one so bad? But no, it is it is nothing like that whatsoever. And um, I thought it was interesting. They actually used footage from like a storm, like for the boat on the seas. From a 1925 film called *The Stormbreaker*, um, looks pretty good for 1925 footage, and I obviously didn't 
detect I, i've read that different frame rates are there and you can really tell that it's just like nope it didn't feel like it to me i just thought that was a good storm scene it's so action-packed it didn't really i wasn't micro analyzing that one yeah i didn't look at that scene on the sea and think that's faster than it should be it didn't take away from my enjoyment at all I was very much like hey wow what like it was a gift it was a surprise gift that look, look what they did here you know because just minutes earlier we have uh, a detail shot onto a crucifix that is handed by a local woman, Hungarian woman, I suppose, Transylvanian woman to Renfield. And, and it's it's not uh, a, a film shot. It's just a still picture. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like that. And I was like, oh, OK, we might get some of this. And then we and then we get something even more fantastical or uh, visually appealing. Yeah, and for what it's worth, Dracula is the movie that that scene will be more known for because I don't hear a lot of people going around like, ah, oh, that's just taken out of the Stormbreaker. Stormbreaker's higher than Jaws on my boat movie, and I'm the boat movie guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, wardrobe here. Uh, let's talk about like the all-black getup, the pendant necklace, uh, which is not a star, David, by the way. I guess I guess people have, uh, have said that that's a... Uh, an anti-Semitic kind of thing. It's not a star, David. Um, white, very pressed white. I don't know how he gets. I, how does he keep his shirts this white, sleeping in a box with dirt and living in living in this castle that's literally open to the air? Like the windows have fallen in. There's no. Who presses his clothes? Does he send them out for dry cleaning? Is I, I need to know where these white shirts come from. You would expect my clothes to get soiled. <laughs> I always get blood on them. I send them to the cleaners. <laughs> and I always think when he when he turns into a bat, you, you, the the camera should pan down and just see this this crumbled heap of clothes and, and two shoes there. <laughs> yeah, and and then, and then he sneaks back to get them, you know, naked. Well, that's a very good point. Like <laughs> in wolf form, he comes back and retrieves them. You know how the dog will get your slippers for you. <laughs> I, you're right. The cutscenes. They talk about the cutscenes that the producers uh, impose on Todd Browning that made continuity errors. You just landed on the Matthew right there. You know, I mean, they had the groundskeeper being like, "What are all the? What's this black cape in the in the middle of the garden?" <laughs> I I think I needed to see Count Dracula upon arriving in England, walking at a normal gait and pace with a cane, the top hat. I think I needed to see him on his way to the show younger version more revitalized version i needed to see him looking like what you might have expected like lestat to be dressed as walking down that same street i i, I think that is something about the refinement of of counter dracula that that was another thing and this was this calls back to 30 minutes ago we were chatting about well are, are vampires monsters well we have certain depictions where where the fangs stick out like buck teeth and it's much more visceral and animalistic. Uh, and we know that, that Dracula is a shape changer, but uh, the, the, the adding, the idea that vampires are refined, cultured, can dress to the nines, I, I think this must be where it started. And in any media depiction, in like, oh, th there's a reason why vampires are sometimes seen as smooth, and it's because of our wardrobe choices. Yeah, it's, it's because of Lugosi, I and mean, he's got he's got so much to answer for. Um, it, it, even the the one thing that didn't stick, you know, the the, the fangs, uh, or, or rather not having fangs, you know, that that apparently was was his his decision. There there are references 
in the script, in the screenplay to, to him having fangs. And I think Lugosi himself said, uh, you know, no, I don't want the fangs. Um, although actually when you, when you think about it, it's, it's much more horrible to imagine him biting neck. Uh, right. With, that's worse. Without fangs. But, uh, <laughs> right. but yeah, but yeah, with that silk top hat when he's striding through the fog, I mean, that, that is such an image. Uh, you know, I kind of, you kind of get that a little bit, don't you, Dustin? Like right before he takes the girl, like handing out flowers. I felt so bad for her, by the way. I'm like, here she is being super nice. Like, it's a dismal day and like it's like foggy and terrible. Like, I mean, she's trying to spread a little bit of cheer. Here's a flower for you, sir. And he, um, I mean, he yeah. really and, does. And then he and then he steals her soul and dooms her to, uh, you know, you know, cold body temperatures and, and, and unable to die for the rest of her I life. I suppose I am judging Dracula for really having no restraint at all. I, I, to, to, <laughs> to, to, to be able to put a plan together to get to a more populated area. Uh, we haven't actually discussed the plot that much. That's okay. I don't, don't need to. What I'm what I'm looking at is, well, he he just arrives and starts biting. <laughs> he, he is not holding back at all. You're right. It's like yeah. Van Helsing's like, I think it's Dracula. And I was like, what? Preposterous! <laughs> really? He's like, well, I mean, from the moment he got here, everybody started getting chewed on and dying. So I mean, I put one and one together. It's it's two. Yeah. I mean. He's on the way to the theater. He's deliberately going to the theater in order to <laughs> to insinuate himself with the with this this uh, the people that are living next door to his to his castle. They're you know they're the, they're the ones he's got his sights on, and literally en route to the theater, he sees this girl and he thinks, "Oh, I got time." Uh. It's like Roger Moore, James Bond. If there's a pretty woman, it's, he will find time in his yeah. schedule and just slip that in there. I mean, mm-hmm. an irresistible young woman. He's like mm, snack. I should say, actually, um, just to, to sidetrack it slightly, that the uh, that that character, um, the, the the flower girl, is my one my one Dracula claim to fame because she, the name of that actress was 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 lost to history, um, which was which was odd because the trade papers at the, the time the film was being prepared were were very good at naming uh, the, the the various cast members. I mean, as is often the way in early Hollywood films, the the credits are extremely parsimonious and there are all number of of uh, roles in in the movie that aren't that aren't credited but we know who we know who the actors are uh partly because the trade papers would literally day to day say you know x has just been added to the cast of dracula she's playing a nurse or whatever but this this very small but featured role uh with dialogue um nobody knew who she was and uh the, the reason for that i think is because it was it was a, a reshoot it was added as a, as a reshoot after the the main body of the film had wrapped and um uh david skull who is the the kind of dracula expert that that we're all in debt to um so much of what we know about the film is due to him he was approached by uh, a young guy who said i um appeared in a play in an amateur production with an old actress and she told me that she was one of Dracula's brides in the film Dracula. Uh, now, the, the actresses playing the brides, we know. We know who they are. Mm-hmm. So, so that wasn't right. So, so Skull thought, wow, I wonder if she's the flower girl. So he went to track her down. And by that time, unfortunately, she, she had died. And this was an actress called Anita Harder. And he found some old photographs of her and he, he said, yeah, she looks like the flower girl. So for a very, very long time, for many, many years, uh, she was listed as as the flower girl. 
in uh, IMDb and, and, and anywhere else. Um, but when I was researching my book, I, I found um, a, an obscure interview in an, in an Australian newspaper with a British actress called Bunny Beatty, um, who says that she has just shot that scene and, and she describes it in, in very convincing detail. And she also mentions another film that she had a walk-on part in called Outward Bound. So I, I tracked down Outward Bound very helpfully. She said she was holding a dog. So she's the only person in, in the crowd at the end. Um, so, so the reason why IMDb and everywhere else now, uh, correctly credits that role to an actress called Bunny Beatty is because of my book. Well done, Matthew. That is, that, that's in depth, dude. That's hardcore. God, we have them on our show. The yeah. limit of, of my of my my um, claims to originality in this field. <laughs> and and if, if we're talking about wardrobe here, we, we I'd be remiss without telling this. So uh, one of his original capes, his son, his son actually had Bela Lugosi Jr. And in 2011, uh, they put bidding up on it at uh, sell. Its starting bid was 1.2 million, which seems like a lot for a cape, and it was because nobody bought it, nobody bid on it, and uh, it later got donated to the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures uh, and was restored in 2020. But um, it, it stayed in the family for a long, long time, and it was a very prized possession. He only had one son, five different marriages. That's that's wild. But um, um, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's there's an interview of him talking about the cape, and he got buried in, or Lugosi was buried in one of his capes as well. I thought the eyes, the lighting, like they just took like pencil holes and like, you know, shone a spotlight through it to get really bright light on his eyes. It's deceptively simple, but incredibly effective how everything's dark except for that, those eyes. And boy, he does not blink much, does he, Matthew? He doesn't know that it's it's quite something, isn't it? It's uh, it's incredibly reticent with 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 the kind of stuff that we would now expect to be in a Dracula movie. Um, but but I, I, I do think that 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 is deliberate i i do think that what browning was trying to do was to to take something that you know was 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 kind of hocus pocusy uh, and and make it believable make it modern and and real and i think the that meant a kind of a trade-off in terms of um overtly um unrealistic unrealistic effects yeah, so they didn't do what they couldn't do. That makes that makes a lot of good sense as well. I, I got to say that some, what they some of it was, do. I I, I like that that it was a choice not to to go that 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 far down any special effects. Uh, I, I would go so far as to say they shouldn't have. I'm glad that they didn't. It's it's its value is in the way that it's sort of uh whether some people that criticize it as dull or it's not exactly what you might expect, that's that's how it has to be. You know, one thing that I um, was impressed by, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, was the camera work by Carl Freund. Um, he's, his camera work moves in a way that, and I'm not as adept as you are at film from this era, Matthew, but correct me if I'm wrong, but some of these early shots with the camera, like moving through like the, the gate at the beginning or the scene where we're like in the basement catacombs of his castle as you're coming to the coffin, they're very good suspense builders and these tracking shots move forward and then like it changes the angle down. Now, I mean, we got, we, I, I went to town on this in Casablanca and they moved the camera in great ways through some of these uh, scenes here. But I mean, I, this is 1931. We were limited. We were using sound stages and I have to sit there and say like, I'm impressed 
by a lot of the camera work that I'm seeing from this movie, particularly in the early portions of the movie, just set in the mood. I agree. Yeah, I think it's one of the most unfair um, criticisms of the film that it that it is um, that the camera work is, is is unimaginative. What I think it's subtle, and I think it it plays fair by the mood of the movie. It's a stealthy, sneaky kind of camera that that sort of insinuates its way into into the the action. And a very good example is is the one you quoted, which is which is um, when we first see when Renfield arrives at the castle and we first see Dracula, uh, we see him uh, in long shot and and you know, the, the camera is almost kind of holding back uh, as if as if, you know, it's it's no more sure than we are of what's going on here. Uh, and people who favor the Spanish version say, well, look, com- just compare it with this scene in the Spanish version where they use a crane to to swoop down almost as if the camera is a bat into this this long swooping tracking shot up into Dracula. And they say, isn't that better? Isn't that more imaginative, more dramatic? Um, it, it, it's certainly more energetic, but I, I think I prefer uh, the the other the other way. Um, and people say, you know, why you know why didn't Browning use that crane? Well, he did use the crane, but he used it in a totally different scene. He uses it in the scene where we track up the wall of the asylum uh, in through the the window of of Renfield's cell. Um, I, I I prefer that 100. It's it's a subtle. Um, much better use of that crane, I think, in a way that serves the mood of the piece. The music that we do have in here, I thought it was interesting, Act 2, uh, A Swan Lake, is what we open this movie to. And then, as mentioned, we have some Wagner at the at the actual concert hall. The m- music that we do get, are you a fan of it, Matthew? And would you have, would you, I didn't think you've mentioned you like it awfully a lot the way it is, but if you could, how, what would you say? You said Philip Glass overdid it. What, it, what does this movie need if, if Matthew Conium could help, help select the score for this? Um, well, maybe a, a few more opportunities where, you know, there, there is, there's um, opportunities for, for useful diegetic music in the way that the, the Wagner is. I don't, I don't miss a score as such. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I find it eerier. Uh, without it, um, I have to say that the opening bars of, of uh, the the use of Swan Lake, that that version of Swan Lake, um, for me, is absolutely iconic as much as anything else in the it's movie. It's forever just, attached. Yeah, it says Dracula to me, which you know, obviously the the piece is it isn't Dracula. It's Swan Lake. <laughs> no. also, even in 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 this context, it's not it's not unique to Dracula. It's actually some opening music that Universal used a lot. They use it in their version of the Mummy. Um, they use it in, in a number of early 1930s films. That exact same recording. But to me, I just I hear the first note strike up, and I'm in Transylvania. I, I think mm-hmm. what the movie could potentially use the assistance of are some solo instrument or uh, solo instrument sections of maybe some uh, higher violin doing doing some kind of uh, fast reverberations or like a like a flute perhaps as the dawn arrives because i did find myself that like the difference between night and day was there but it wasn't very easy for me to see like, like something perhaps to um just little hits not for not full orchestrations uh just something uh you know if if we are watching a slinking dracula go through someplace you know the first thing that comes to mind with with something like low cello or bass 
it's not meant to be comedic. It's not meant to be like the sousaphone as someone's trotting through. But I, I think it could be assisted that way. But I don't think it absolutely needs it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Matthew, when they when this was aired with silent movie versions, if I'm not mistaken, silent movie houses have people sitting there playing piano over it for them, right? Well, I presume it was used internationally. Um, but the, the interesting thing is, um, uh, as you know, when Dracula is killed at the end, another big problem that a lot of people have with the film is that it takes place off screen. We don't I'm not shocked a... for the era, though. I mean, uh... yeah, but, you know, not even, you know, the shadow on the wall or something, you know, all, all, all we get is, is, a, is, a, is an off screen groan from Dracula. And obviously in a silent version, that's not going to that's not going to cut the mustard. So apparently um, in the now lost silent version, there is a more explicit see, shot of, of Dracula being staked simply because they couldn't convey it with sound uh so it would be very very interesting to 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 see that but it i i suspect it's it's long since vanished i did have i did have a little bit of an issue with the the, the kill scene myself i was like uh you know mina seems to seemingly comes out of it very easily and yes that's what broke the connection there but it it was one of those things of like ah that's anticlimactic like you know, we don't even see, like you said, you don't see Van Helsing from behind or something like that. Like, like, like over Jonathan's shoulders. Like, I, I, I wish some gesture had been given to it. And I know this movie's like loaded up with like 1931 cinema of what you can and cannot show is definitely a tricky game. So, and I think they were just worried that if they overloaded, you know, the, the horror, people would, would, would just not, not take it, you know? What made people faint at the time out of curiosity? I presume it's it's things like the uh, well, I mean, if it happened at all, I mean, I, uh, you know, you have to. You know, I have wondered that. I have wondered uh, like, is that, is that something you jazz up in your papers? To... Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a kind of a standard line to take on these things for publicity. But but I, I imagine you know the things that might have made people feel a little woozy is stuff like you know the 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 very very slow a scene where he's coming into Lucy's bedroom and and he's just getting closer and closer to the bed and then he's edging closer and closer to her uh you know you you could imagine people thinking oh my god at, at this 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 slow almost balletic violation sort of, of slumber exactly yeah yeah okay yeah sure yeah i wasn't sure if just climbing out of a coffin like did it for yeah i mean time. that that too i guess yeah you know i mean but you know skeletons in coffins and things i mean there wasn't there wasn't a lot of that in 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 earlier films you know it's kind of a it's kind of a you know, a, a violation of a sacred thing, you know, opening a right. coffin is a, is a, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a terrible thing to do. Yeah. And they didn't, you're not used to stuff coming out of it. I get that for sure. So around um, the time, you know, this is literally just lightning bolted into my head uh, around the time. That's when um, American comic books were sort of establishing the things they could and could not put into comic books that the general public, you just can't do this. And one of them was the portrayal of ghouls. And the term ghoul was specifically attributed to somebody that eats flesh. So cannibal. So like as far even comic books that deal exclusively with the fantastic would say, well, no, you don't don't you dare bite someone. That's not something that we can print or ink or illustrate. And so I see the idea of having these things off screen and it makes sense for the time. 
uh, as far as emerging from the coffin or, uh, you know, something that is sacrosanct that, you know, grave robbers deserve worse than any other type of robber is the very like the, the, the way that his hands manipulate the underside of the wood as crawling out is something that once again is uh, you could say this is the beginning of that kind of. Uh, not mime work, but that type of usage of a body part, not for function, but he's he's acting with his fingers. Uh, a, a wonderful uh, start to that as a tradition. And there's a religious element to it as well, of course, you know, because because, uh, you know, in, internment is accompanied by a religious ceremony and it's a sacred rite, yeah. you know, to, to 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 show, you know, coffins being being, you know, re- torn open and 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 getting a look at what's in there has a sacrilegious element to it as well. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and I would say that the, our, our boxes used in this movie more resemble shipping crates than they do our normal shape of coffins, and that must have been a decision. Perhaps. That's never struck me before, but that's a, that's a very good point. Yeah, they certainly do. And I wonder if, if maybe that is a, an element. Yeah, yeah. Russell, did you hear that? The author of the book said he hadn't thought of that before. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. Yep. Yeah. Ready to go. Let's hand on some awards. What do you say, guys? Wonderful. MVP of Dracula, Matthew. It's, it's got to be Lugosi. I mean, he just, he, he, he has transformed the whole project from you know a, a potentially interesting film into something that that you know he 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 has personally changed and and sent out into the world yeah that's mine as well how about you dustin i mean he uh he's like i said the spanish version has a lot of things that people will claim are better than this one but uh uh Look no farther than the lead man to know why it's not, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, coming up short in the Dracula category, who knows? This was a risky gamble and it hinged on him and he made it happen. I selected my MVP before knowing the treatment uh, uh, of Bella Lugosi afterwards, but I, I put my MVP as Universal Studios of making the decision to go with this. And it ended up being a huge, uh, a huge one bet that this would work and continue to work for our movie monsters. So, uh, you know, it, it, that's not because I didn't want to give credit where it was due. I just thought like, you know, that universal was universal's logo was all over this thing. And I thought, well, that's, you know what, that's pretty cool that like, just as we've mentioned the history of this movie, starting this phenomenon in a way. Uh, so well done to the decision to let's go with this. Yeah. Yeah. Which was de- largely due to, to Carl Lemley Jr. Who was the 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 twenty or so year old son of of Carl Emley, who owned the studio? Carl uh, Emley was extremely wary of the project. He didn't he really didn't want to get involved with it. But Carl Emley Jr. was a was a big fan of 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 horror, and it was really it was really him that 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 stuck with it and and pushed it through. Yeah, absolutely. And best supporting, Matthew. Um, again, an obvious answer, but, but Dwight Fry is, is, is just sensational. The, the, uh, that sequence where, uh, the, the, um, 
the the maid is unconscious on the floor in the foreground and he's just crawling towards her very very slowly just just and you you know you you no idea what he's even going to do because he's not actually a vampire he's dracula's servant but he's he's not a vampire so he's not going to bite her neck um he, he's actually in in the script he he and in the spanish version he's 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 actually after an insect um and then there's a kind of a comic release at the end of that of that sequence when he when he ignores her and goes for an insect browning has none of that he cuts before that he just has him crawling towards her um i think fry is sensational in this film now the guy who's supposed to keep renfield locked up is definitely comic relief yes yeah (laughs) <laughs> and oh, not very good at his job. No. Oh, no. Here we go again, Martin. Going out. Going out. <laughs> it's like, I have a place where I know he won't be locked up. It's like, fine, but I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Dustin, how about you? Uh, who's your best supporting actor? I couldn't be anyone else but Dwight Fry. Uh, absolutely stole the show. Dwight Fry was a very close call for my MVP because he actually has to deal with the most transformation in his acting, he has to cover the most range. And to steal it like he does from a lower build position. He's really good. It bums me out to hear that he was typecasted as only doing this because you can tell in the early scenes when he's going in, I mean, there's a he's got range and he uses it here. And it, it, I cannot understand for the life of me. This guy's clearly a good actor. I wish, he gotten, I wish he had gotten a better treatment coming out of this as well. So he's my pick too. Hidden Jim Matthew. Francis Dade as Lucy. Uh, it's 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 the it's the second female lead. You tend to you tend to forget about it, um, but it's actually a, a very very nice performance of a in some ways a more interesting character because she's the one who 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 falls for Lugosi. Um He he has to kind of no she's uh, smitten with him yeah yeah he, he has to sort of force himself on on Mina in in a sense but but Lucy takes one look at him and and you know she's his uh and it's and it's um it's it's a part that you know could easily be overshadowed by the others and it's a part that it i think it could easily be overplayed um and uh, and i think she she's she does it very nicely okay yeah Dustin hidden Jim charles k Garrard as martin I, I i loved i guess maybe an orderly maybe a guard uh he he was a real bright spot uh that i don't i even with the tone i don't think the movie needed to have his uh humor in it but that it existed only served to increase tenfold the you know entertainment of what we're watching uh so every time you see him or even just hear his voice and his accent you're thinking, oh, this, all right, welcome back. Glad to see you again. They're all crazy in there, except for you and me. And I'm having my doubts about you. <laughs> having my doubts about you as he backs away with his <laughs> rifle. <laughs> <laughs> so mine's going to be Carla Limley. Uh, she is uh, the daughter of Carl Limley. Or sorry, niece. Niece of, Car- niece of Carl Limley. And she's the last surviving member of the film. And she's, she's the one who... Uh, plays in the stagecoach at the beginning reading the history of transylvania aloud letting you know that this is not a this is not the fun and sun capital of europe here so um it's uh, so she is uh claimed that she is the first woman in talking pictures of the so in the first line of dialogue in a horror film so um that was in the beginning of my documentary that i had on my dvd so um she was very enthusiastic there and so tiny little part and 
first woman speaking in a dialogue of a horror film. And, and what, one interesting thing about about that character is it, it because of the the way the film has been cut, it's not at all clear. Um, but the the that that very matronly uh, woman in in the carriage. Um, that they are actually together. She, um, the, the, the Carla Lemley character is, is her companion. And, um, in the script, they, they, they have more scenes together and there is a the definite implication, a subtle implication of a, of a, of a lesbian relationship between them. Oh, wow. I missed that. The, I find that old film is so tiptoey with that. So I, 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 I totally, I totally missed it, but yes. I think it's lovely that she's re- reading from a guidebook. It's, 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 it's this wonderful idea that this place is like th- this absolute backwater that's still full of wolves and vampires and, you know, the, 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 the monsters of folklore. But it's also, you know, you can get a guidebook. It's kind of on the tourist map <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I shout out to Shout out to the villager with the like fierce handlebar mustache at the beginning yes. too, like warning him like Bordello Pass. What? <laughs> no, no, you should not go there. That's a terrible idea. Like that guy put every ounce of like it's like you got thirty seconds, man, and he put all the energy into it. <laughs> so um, that was some silent movie expression. I was like, you know, we have sound, right? We can hear you, right? Doesn't matter. I'm gonna go big here. Um. Recast. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, uh, let's see, who would it be, Matthew? Uh, well, I mean, I have to say David Manners, although it, it, in fairness, it's, you know, it isn't his fault. It is, it is, unfortunately, it's, it's a role that, that, that gives no opportunities to, to anyone. I mean, the, the, the problem being, once again, it's, 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 it's fallout from the fact that this is, um, the adaptation of of the play so in the play um it's all it's all set in in london and so obviously it, it's made clear that that jonathan harker knows nothing of dracula he's as much in the dark as any other character so that meant that when they added the transylvanian prologue they couldn't have jonathan harker going there so that's why it's renfield who who in the book is obviously is not the character that, that goes to visit dracula um so that makes perfect sense as a as a, a solution to a construction problem, but unfortunately, it makes the Jonathan Harker character almost irrelevant, and and the you know the 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 way it's written just underlines that at every possible opportunity. He's so wet, um, <laughs> you know, like like uh, when um, she's talking she's talking to the uh, Mino's talking to the bat. She, this is very eerie scene where the bat is flapping and, she, and, and she's talking to it and he's saying, look out, it'll get in your hair and stuff That's like right. that. Um, he's not a very likable Jonathan, I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of rooting for Dracula over this guy. You're kind of like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, the other guy lets you keep your like, you know, living like actually alive, but uh, this other guy's not so terrible either. So uh, compared to your uh, limp noodle of a uh, Beyonce here, so I'm with you. Who who would you put in his place, though? Well, yeah, I mean, fair enough. I mean, I, I I guess somebody who's just a just a little bit more, that's just got a little bit more oomph in him. I mean, he's um, I don't know, just somebody a bit with a bit more physical presence. I think. You know who else wasn't also a bad Jonathan Harker? Keanu Reeves. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Whoa. <laughs> no way. Vampire. <laughs> But at least he, you know, he he kind of looked the part more. Yeah, well, I mean, 
I think he gets most of his roles on his looks, I think, to some degree. So, Dustin, recast. You know, I had originally... You know, I had originally written that I was going to bow out of this because who in their right mind would trust me with understanding the pool of actors in the 1930s? The answer You're is allowed to go anew on this one. We, we make exceptions. Here's the thing, though. Uh, I said, no, that's, that's the way of the chump. That's the way of the guy who's not going to stand up and do his job. But it was really hard to choose because the, who I ended up recasting was Helen Chandler, who I adore. And I said, put Catherine Hepburn in there just because she's entrancing to me. Uh, so I thought I, I came after Helen Chandler, too, by the way. I think there's nothing wrong with her. Like she's 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 an appealing looking woman. But I think her performance is a little bit flat. She's supposed to be the one we're all pining over and worrying about whether, you know, she's her, her well-being is at stake. Like this is this is what this movie, the last act is like pulling over. Like you got to care about her. And she doesn't make me really. Uh, she doesn't seem as vulnerable enough or sweet enough or scared enough. I just like th- there's something missing from Mina's performance here. I actually did think Lapita Tovar um, from the Spanish version did deliver this better. So if she could speak English, and I don't think she can. Um, I think you get a better Mina. I think your Dracula is definitely better here. Your Van Helsing's definitely better here. But in the Spanish version, I think you get a better Mina. Well, Catherine Hepburn, the year before, had had made a film called Bill of Divorcement, um, in which she appeared opposite David Manners. So they would have a bit of history and maybe a bit more chemistry. Maybe so. There we go. So, so, uh, so it was an absolutely brilliant option for me to choose. <laughs> perfect. Replacing Ellen Chandler with Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> Helen Chandler, after being denounced here, well, let's go to best shot, Matthew. Uh, best shot. Um, again, I have to go for an iconic one, but it's it's you know it's just so important in terms of horror film uh, iconography, which is the the nocturnal attack on Lucy, the uh, you know the coming in through the French windows, landing on the balcony, coming through into this uh, the, the the slow stalking. Up towards the the uh, the slumbering uh, slumbering body, and then slowly moving in on it, and then a and then a, then a fade. Um, I I would say that 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 was the moment when uh, audiences watching this film um, knew that that this this was uh, this was something that uh, was much more than just one movie. Yeah, Dustin, how about you? Best shot. When I was watching the movie and we first slowly pan in on Dracula as his wives are waking up out of their coffins, I thought, wow, this is the shot. This is what is what we see. But it wasn't until later on where we see a very similar slow pan in on Mina getting close to John on the terrace when she is leaning in and he's getting a little scared and they do a little bit of the eye magic with her. And what what that does, she's leaning in, the camera's panning in. And what it makes you do as an audience member is you're leaning in as well. You're anticipating. This is why it ends up on a thrill list. You know, you don't need explosions to be a thriller. And this was this was very, very good. I think there's the obligatory pick of just the eyes, like with the, the light on them, like of Lugosi's <laughs> eyes on the close-up, that yeah. I think is the obligatory pick that I have to at least call out and mention. But I want to say the face shot of Renfield holding onto the ladder as they discover him in the ship in the dark, dark background, and like they put a spotlight on his face. Man, he looked deranged in a good way. Like, I mean, that was, 
that was a good scene. They're like, look at him. He's mad. Um, that was a sobering kind of like, whoa, that got your attention moment for me. Best scene, Matthew. I mean, I love them all. I'll go with the, the, the concert hall scene because it is it is a scene that's that stands out as as apart from the rest of the film, partly because it has music in the background, which if you if you don't sort of concentrate on on why it's there could easily just just play as as scoring. Uh, I love the I love the lighting, the fact that it's in subdued light. Um, and I and I just love to. I, I, it's 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 almost like a second introduction to Dracula because suddenly now he's he's in London. He's with these other characters, and we know he's he's got his sights on them. And and how how is he going to play this? You know, he's not going to just go in and start biting them. What's 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 his game plan going to be? And and we see this this seductive charmer uh, start to uh, start to make his moves on them. Uh, and um, I just think it's very very eerie and it, and it ends with that with that splendid uh, close up on his face after he's uh, he's kind of given the game away a bit and said uh, to die to be really dead that must be glorious right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, Dustin best scene it is the reveal of Count Dracula as a vampire from Van Helsing to Seward and Harker that I figured it out. This is what's going on. Uh, we do get a lot of our principal actors in one room. Um, but I, I just, I thought it was, it, it's not like I'm always looking for like the big exposition dump. I just was, was wondering when and how this, uh, this big presence of Van Helsing is going to take on. It's like, he says, we're going to win this. You must, <laughs> I must be master here. I'm like, well, let's start listening to this guy. So <laughs> that's my best scene. Mine is a Van Helsing scene as well, where he and Dracula have a showdown, and Dracula's trying to mind control him, but he does not succumb to it. And, uh, you know, like he kind of backs off in the end, but, you know, he's still got the upper hand with Dr Dracula still very much in control of the situation. But um, Darth Vader doesn't do a force choke if Dracula doesn't extend his hand like that. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, your force tricks, your Jedi tricks don't work on the, on the, uh, and those, uh, I guess it only works in the weak-minded, and Van Helsing's no weak mind, that's for sure. So a strong will, uh, that one. Strong-willed. Yeah, I really liked that scene, by the way. So, um, tense moment, too. So, best wardrobe or makeup moment, Matthew. The fact that it that it invents the look of the vampire, you know, the vote should go to to uh, Lagozzi's costuming. But actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna say um, the the look of his uh, of his wives in the castle, his brides, um, because um, at the, obviously at the time this film was made, um, the word vampire um, was was widely used in a, in a metaphorical sense, in the sense of vamp to mean a predatory female. Um, and a lot of uh, the early reviews of the films of the film um, say things like, "This is a film about vampires." No, not that sort. Uh, the real, you know, so, so, so vampire in that sense was, you know, was it was a, a very current thing. And the and these women um, are, are fascinating because they presumably have been there for for centuries, um, but they they from the at least from the neck up, uh, they look like. 1920s um, jazz age 
uh, vampire girls. They've got, they've got, you know, um, the short wavy haircut. Yeah. The, the, the little, yeah, bob haircuts. The bob hair. And the, the bee sting lips. And, uh, and I just think that they look fantastic. And the, that shot of the three of them framed in the, the arch doorway. Hey, I mean, if you're, if you're committed to a lifetime of, or eternity, I mean, keeping up with the styles, I mean, that's part of your cover. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, those are some stylish ladies. So, um, well, there's, by an the aspect, way, there's an aspect is, of this movie where like, I think it's, it's at times in other portrayals of Dracula, where the existing wives of Count Dracula are covetous or jealous that he would be looking elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And we don't really get any of that here. Um, no. I, I don't think it's fair to say that I like that better generally, but I, I, I don't think we needed it in this movie. I thought, Hey, we're here. You go, you go across the sea. We'll, we'll. We'll, we'll keep it tight over here. We're fine. Uh, <laughs> there's pl- plenty of other people in the village. We've got stuff to do. I've actually been meaning to do some projects, and you just keep getting in the way. So you just run along. <laughs> that's fun. That's a, that's a humorous take. Out of curiosity. Um, they're still there waiting for him to come back. Yeah, Dracula's. <laughs> they're still there. <laughs> Dr- Dracula's pack of ladies. They, um, they're usually portrayed to be very... Um, you know, sexy, sensual, or whatever. This movie, obviously, 31, is toned down. Is this laying it on sexy for 1931, or is this is that's just not the approach that they thought to take with these characters at this point in time? And that's me superimposing perception of what these characters would become later back onto this. I think they're sexy to the extent that they're that they're they're beautiful women, not hideous hags. You know, that's that's got it. That's yeah. a decision. I mean, obviously, in the Spanish version, they're they're sexier again, aren't they? But um, that's yeah. I think that in itself is a gesture. Justin, best wardrobe makeup moment uh, for me. Even though I I chose to recast her, I, I think the I think Helen Chandler is breathtaking in the scene where Jonathan says that her eyes are looking at him different than they've ever looked at me, and we get that shot. It's it's a combination of the shot and her makeup it's really her makeup it's not it's not about the wardrobe at all for me it's it's i I just think that occasionally you get a a wonderful shot of beauty incarnate and we got it i'm I'm gonna be dull here but it's gotta be bella's black cape it makes him look bigger and more bat-like so and uh, I noticed the, in this in this movie, he does not do the kind of pull the cape up and ve- yeah! peer out from behind it that has become part of the iconography of the character. Also, if I'm Bella Gossi, I'm mad at what everybody's done to my hairline in the future, too. He's got a pretty, he's rocking a pretty solid hairline it's here. It's just flat. It's lined up. We would say, go edge me up. Uh, it's not the Widow's Peak is like Billy Munster, not Billy, Eddie Munster. Where did the Widow's Peak come from, Matthew? Like, I mean, that's a good hairline. I would take that hairline right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, if you look at the photos of the of the the, the play from the nineteen twenties, although um, he, he's more he looks more monstrous than than Lugosi does in the film, but 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 the the essential uh, the essential um, well well turned out nature of him is there, and and the yeah the widow's peak is is there. Change one thing, Matthew. I wouldn't change anything about the the film itself. What I would dearly like to change is something about the 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 currently circulating versions of it. Um, Hermann Goering supposedly said, "When I hear the word culture, I reach for my gun." Well, when I hear the word restoration, I reach for mine. Um, not always, you know. I appreciate that that 
it's you know people do some very very good work and and it's a wonderful thing to to uh to to restore these movies but conium's law is if it's possible to balls up a restoration they will do so and <laughs> restorations have to be done by people who know intimately the the film that they're restoring and i get the feeling that that universal have a had a had a team of restorers who were given this thing uh they were given the the job to to improve anything that can be improved and they did something that they uh, brag about in the in the restoration documentaries which is uh getting rid of a of an unwanted jump cut in the opening credits when when the title dracula appears then uh, and fades and the next uh title card fades in before the first one fades out entirely it it kind of jumps and what they've done is they've smoothed that out to make it a to make it a seamless transition what they don't know is what they've done is taken out one of the things that people uh, strange people like me who obsess about the film most loved about it which is what we call the the ghost title card um when the dracula title fades out you can just see for for literally a frame or two a fragment of the original dracula title card with dracula written in completely different lettering and with bella lugosi's name very prominently underneath it uh what happened apparently was that they realized that the, the, the credits the whole thing was done very very quickly if you look um uh carl lemley is is referred to as as the universal studio president rather than president it was a very rushed job uh and they suddenly realized that they hadn't credited john balderston the, uh, the 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 writer so they had to the only place they could stick that in was in the opening title card so they went back took out Lugosi put in Balderston and wrote Dracula in a in a totally different font and for just a frame or two if you people used to get our little freeze frame button and and down now get it and ah there it is nine times out of ten you'd miss it but once in a while you'd get it and there would be this eerie different title card the ghost title card that's now gone so keep your old dvds keep your old vhs copies because only they have got the ghost title card so in case you didn't notice matthew has attention for detail very <laughs> so th- that is that is that's intense matthew uh dustin how about you man what, what what's your change one thing mine is really about the plot which is, I think, Dracula needs something else to do in like, London. The purpose of leasing Carfax Abbey, show me the Carfax Abbey, reason for why he's there. I don't really know, if, aside from just hunting, perhaps, but I think the stakes might be higher if there's some grander, eviler scheme, maybe. I don't know if Dracula can even be considered evil. He is what he is. I, I don't know what it... And this, this is not a result of like other vampire movies or other horror movies. I just think he maybe needed some other thing to do. Uh, or a plan that could be thwarted. Maybe that's where uh, John Harker shows up and says, I know how to stop the plan. You guys do cool stuff. I will do something else. Uh, you know, I just I thought to myself, what, what's he really doing here? Aside from just throwing all the caution to the wind, um, so uh, that that's that's my change. One thing, mine's gonna be add music. 
I know I've I know I've oh, been on this I, yeah, I know I know I've been on this for a long time but uh I think I think that will elevate everything that you've got here so um we've we've just said it too many times and um whether it be like I said Jaws was another good example that you brought up Matthew but just too many times where the music elevates the moment and this was one of them that can benefit from it as well so um they just didn't know the power of it at that point in time it's, it's a big part of the formula for me for a scary movie um best quote Matthew there's so many iconic ones that have that have gone down in history. I will plump for one that it's easy to miss, um, but which I think is is really good and which I used as the title for one of the chapters in my book. Um, uh, there's a chapter in my book where I, I discuss the film's uh, links with surrealism and the way it it tries to create a very very fragile delicate atmosphere of of otherworldliness a kind of a dream logic um and there's a there's a great line where uh mina is talking about how she uh encountered lucy um in in spectral form and and she sort of is speaking very matter-of-factly about it you know but she she encountered her and she's and then i remembered she was dead oh yeah that's a that's a good one dustin how about you? Best quote. Well, uh, the one I had chosen was the one that you had said the Film Institute had chosen as the greatest quote. So I'm going to choose another one, uh, which is, I think he's up in the box when he says there are far worse things awaiting man than death. And they are unaware as to what he could possibly mean, but we all know. I love that. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, I love it when he talks to uh, Van Helsing. He says, uh, for one who has not lived even a single lifetime, you're a very wise man, Van Helsing. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, so, we've come full circle. Oh, actually, uh, this is, I want to remind everybody again, please check out Matthew's book, uh, uh, Dracula AD 1931, and uh, check out the Marx Brothers Council podcast. And uh, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on here, but we're going to get up to the moment here of it's the moment on a five-star scale, half-star intervals. What would you give Dracula? Uh, I could only give you two answers, I'm afraid. My, my rational brain gives it a defiant four. Uh, my true self gives it 400,000 and counting. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting, though. That's, that's interesting that your rational brain still, still is holding back, though. Um, Dustin, how about you? Five-star scale. For me, now we're talking about first-time viewer. Uh, trying to put myself in the, the shoes of someone that hasn't seen it before, maybe doesn't know all this stuff. Going lower than you might expect, 2.5 stars. Uh, this movie is extremely important to people who like movie history and the productions around the tradition of what this started. But I think that's it. Uh, there's a lot of positive things about it, and I really left that to our guest and my co-host to show that stuff off. Uh, listeners will know that I'm I'm not categorically opposed to like old filmmaking and learning how the movie made was made was cool um it's fun when you like doing fun homework about the movie it, and i'm talking to a guy who wrote a book on this thing and that that's that's more fun that's more fun is talking to you about this movie than i had watching the movie so i, I think and it doesn't i don't think it holds up by itself not really i am glad i saw it but i don't think i'd really recommend it to anyone as must watch um i think it's more like must learn so for me, the movie by itself, 2.5. Interesting. I, I'm a little bit coming from where you are, Dustin. I, 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 my 
my earlier experiences would have said like this is a three star movie or you know maybe giving it a little more time 3.5 but i cannot separate the fact that it is a historical impact and to appreciate that it launched a genre the vampire lure movies in general in things that i like and the content i like so it's impossible not to take it as a historical piece and to we did dive in we did study it so once you've done that I can't not give it like a 4.5. I do think Frankenstein, which came out the same year, is probably the superior film. But it's, it's, its place in cinema is undeniable. So I'm going to go big here and go 4.5. Dustin, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I'm ready. Let's go to one of these new movies from the 70s. How about that? <laughs> modern. Uh, yeah, modern 1970s. We're going to go with a lighthearted space adventure somehow. So your options are Dark Star from in the... Far reaches of space, a small crew of 20 years into the, to their solitary mission find things beginning to go hilariously wrong. Option two, Logan's run from 1976, a police officer in the future uncovers a deadly secret behind a society that worships youth. And option three, Moonraker from 1979, James Bond investigates a mid-air theft of a space shuttle and discovers a plot to commit global genocide. Moonraker. He's the moon. made the right choice. The moon with the laser beam. I think that's the theme song for that one, right? The <laughs> Raker beam. <laughs> we got to do it, man. For this show, Moonraker it is. Nobody does it better. Roger Moore, here we go. All right. And Matthew, thank you so much again. This has been thank fun. you for having me. That was lovely. Yes. And uh, to all the Lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us at Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And providing and producing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we always invite you to support our show at the Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Dustin? I give you my solemn word as an embezzler. I'll be back in 10 minutes.